podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Wednesday, March the 9th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from. If you're a UK expat wanting access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, a Liberty Shield VPN can get you that while keeping your data safe. Check out libertyshield.com. Use the code router50 at checkout to get your Liberty Shield router at half price. That's libertyshield.com and router50 at checkout for 50% off your Liberty Shield router. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 and RED10 to get 10% off your football merchandise needs. Right, folks, two games in the Champions League last night. And it must be said, Bayern Munich are just a ridiculous football team when they decide to turn it on. Bayern Munich 7. Red Bull Salzburg won. Again, Bayern Munich 7, Red Bull Salzburg won. This is after a 1-1 draw in the first leg in which Bayern were quite lucky to get a draw. At a time when Bayern are not playing particularly well and dealing with some injury issues, they lined up last night with Manuel Nauer in goal, a back three of Benji Pavard, Nicolas Sewell and Lucas Hernandez. That's probably the best use of both Pavard and Hernandez, the, the shape that suits them both best is a back three. Kimmich and Musiala played as a double pivot in front of them. Lewandowski was up front, and then they went with the line of four. Nat Gnabry, Muller, Sané, and Kingsley Coman. Just getting all of their good attackers on the pitch at one time. It meant that their bench did not make particularly pretty reading. But they just tore into Salzburg from the off and the game was over by the 23rd minute. Lewandowski on 12 with a penalty. Again on 21, another penalty. And again on 33, uh, 23. Game over. Gnabry made it four before half time. Then Muller made it five. Kjergaard did get one back for Salzburg on 70 but another goal from Muller and a late goal from Leroy Sané wrapping things up. Dominant, destructive, sensational. The football they played was sensational. And Thomas Muller, absolutely key to everything good they did last night. His movement, his one-touch passing, the fact that he does everybody else's thinking for them so they can just go and play. He is... Without question, 
one of the greatest players of the last 20 years and probably the most underrated player of the last 20 years. The things he has done in his career are sensational. 110 caps, 42 goals for the national team, 616 games for Bayern, 226 goals, an absolute avalanche of assists, a key part of a World Cup winning team with the national team. He has won 10 Bundesliga titles. He's won six Cups. He's won seven Super Cups, two Champions Leagues, two UEFA Super Cups, two World Club Cups. He was the Golden Ball winner at the 2010 World Cup. He was also voted the best young player at said World Cup. He was the Silver Boot, sorry, Golden Boot winner, which is the best player. He was the Silver Boot player at the 2014 World Cup, as well as winning the Silver Ball as the second top scorer. He was in the All-Star team for 2014 and the World Cup Dream Team in 2014. He was World Soccer Young Player of the Year in 2010. He's been the the best player in so many big games. So many big games for Bayern. He is just a guy who turns up when needed. And the thing is, early in his career, he was much more of a goal scorer. You know, you go back from 0910, he gets 19, 19, 11, 23, 26, 21, 15, 16, he gets 32 goals in 49 games. Sensational. Then he drops off and he has that little three-year spell where people start to write him off. He scores nine, then he gets 15, then it's nine again. Around that time, he was being linked with moves away. There was talk that Byron would let him go on loan, that they felt like his legs had gone. And he's bounced back the last three years, was sensational in the, the, the two seasons with Hansi Flick, 14 goals, 15 goals, tons of assists, 12 goals in 35 this season thus far. And when Bayern needs someone to drag them out of the mud, it is more often than not Thomas Muller. One of, as I said, one of the most underrated players ever and without question, one of the best players of the last 20 years. Uh, 22 assists this season. 22 assists this season. 24 last season. Season before that, 26 assists. For the career, Thomas Muller, 268 goals. All This is including his time with Bayern's reserve team. Uh, and 245 assists. In the Bundesliga, 136 goals, 186 assists. In the Champions League, 52 goals, 29 assists. 268 and 245. You can take out 15 and 5. The 17 goals there that weren't scored in the Bayern first team and five assists. That's 251 and 240. 251 and 240. He's played as a centre forward. He's played as a second striker. 
He's played left wing. He's played right wing. He's played as an attacking midfielder. And wherever it is that he has been asked to play, he has been sensational. And like I said, his record for Germany is also incredible. 42 goals in 110 games. Did I mention he has 40 assists as well? Like, How many forwards can you think of that for the career are pushing close to 300 goals and assists and aren't named Lionel Messi? Messi's obviously way above in terms of goals. Messi's on a different planet to, to Muller, but this level of consistency through 800-odd games and still performing week on week on week. This season, he's just been outstanding again, adapting to another new manager. And it hasn't really mattered to Thomas Muller who his manager has been at Bayern. He just performs. He gives them the very best that he can every single time with his intelligence, with his movement. He doesn't have to be spectacular. His touch can desert him in a game and he'll still have an impact. He's played under Van Hal, Heinkes, Guardiola, Ancelotti, Heinkes again, Kovac, Hansi Flick, and Nagelsmann. And under all of them, he's been outstanding. There's a real case to be made that Thomas Muller is Bayern Munich's greatest ever player. Now, a lot of people will say Beckenbauer, and that's fair. It absolutely is fair. But you can't dismiss what Thomas Muller has done. You could say Gerd Muller. And again, absolutely fair. And with the, the great Bayern players, and there's been so many of them over the years, from Lothar Matthäus to Jürgen Klinsmann, Stefan Effenberg, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Thiago Alcantara, David Alaba. Muller's right up there, right in that same group. He has to be considered in that elite group. Manuel Neuer, of course, deserves to be in there as well. Um, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge would be in that group. Oliver Kahn would be in that group. They're just completely different level. Uh, Paul Breitner, of course, as well. But Muller is absolutely in that group of players as one of the greatest ever for Bayern and maybe the greatest ever when it's all said and done because he doesn't look like slowing down. Thomas Muller doesn't look like his career is coming to an end anytime soon. And because he doesn't rely on physical traits such as pace or power or aerial prowess or anything like that, because he relies on fundamentals and intelligence he could play for the three, four years at a level similar to what we're seeing now. His contract runs out next summer. I would bet a substantial amount of money he will do an extension with Bayern and just continue to produce at this elite level where he's easily double figures goals. You know, this season he could get to 15, 18. 
and he's in the 20s for assists. Year on year on year. What an absolutely sensational player. And if you look at his game logs this season, in the Bundesliga, he's played 25 games. He missed one game because of coronavirus. It's the second time he's had coronavirus. He got neither a goal nor assist against Borussia Mönchengladbach in the first game uh, or against Leipzig in the fourth game or Frankfurt in the seventh game or Mainz in the 15th or Bochum in the 22nd or Leverkusen. So he's played 24 games and in only five of them has he failed to register a goal or assist. He's just so, so good. He is so, so good. Um, sorry, little tangent there, but Thomas Muller just is and will remain one of my all-time favourite players. Anyway, other game last night, Liverpool nil, Inter Milan won, Liverpool through. Uh, Inter gave a good account of themselves across the two legs, but anybody telling you that Inter with a better team across two legs that Inter with a better team in either game is lying to you. Liverpool were the better team in Milan. They were better in the first half. Inter had a good 20 minutes, and then Liverpool were the better team for the last 25. In this game, Liverpool were the better team throughout. Inter had maybe three, five-minute spells where they looked like the better team, where they were on top, and that's about it. With 20 minutes to go, Interchasing the game, Liverpool had them pinned back inside their own penalty area with Van Dijk and Matip both operating inside Inter's half and not just on the halfway line, well inside Inter's half. Liverpool had hit the woodwork three times. Vidal made an incredible block to deny Luis Diaz. And aside from that, Liverpool just continually dominated possession, dominated the game. Inter scored from an absolute worldie by Latour Martinez, a sensational goal by a sensational player. Aside from that, Alison Becker had a couple of fairly straightforward saves to make. This is very much one where the scoreline has shaped the narrative. So you had pundits last night saying that Inter were the better team in both games or across both legs. That's nonsense. Um, you had pundits saying that Inzaghi outmanaged Klopp across both legs. Again, that's nonsense. You had Alexis Sanchez sent off and then Thierry Henry saying that if anyone had played the game, they wouldn't have booked him. Again, that's nonsense. Because think back when Van Dijk got booked for the tackle on Dries Mertens a few years ago, none of these pundits criticised it at all. It's the same tackle. And Alexis should have been sent off for his yellow card foul on Thiago because he catches him on the side of the knee with his studs up. That's a red card. So he should have been off already, but that's absolutely a nailed-on yellow card. And any of the pundits talking absolute bananas drivel on whichever show they happened to be on last night should all be just ashamed of themselves because they're charging money for these views. 
Um, one of the worst claims, I think it was Liam Brady maybe that said it, was that Van Virgil van Dijk often needs the linesman's flag to get him out of trouble. That's called the offside trap. You fool. Now, Liam Brady is, in my view, the third best footballer that Ireland has ever produced. I go McGrath one, Keane two, Brady three. Liam Brady was an incredible footballer for Arsenal, for Juventus, for Sampdoria, for Inter. Not so good at Ascoli. Decent for West Ham. Great for Ireland. Awful manager and never particularly good pundit. And if you grew up in Ireland, when I grew up in Ireland, you had him, John Giles and Eamon Dunphy talking absolute bobbins week after week after week. Dunphy at least was funny and would say outrageous things to get a bit of attention. Or he might turn up having had a few sherries and he might swear once or twice on national television. And poor Bill O'Hurley would have to apologise for the language because, you know, sensitive souls can't hear swear words when watching television. But Giles and Brady, I mean, awful. Absolutely awful. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Liverpool are through with Inter, or sorry, with Bayern. And those two advance tonight. We've got two games. One of them is a bit of a non-event. Manchester City versus Sporting. City are five up from the first leg. It would take an absolute catastrophe for anything to go wrong. But Pep Guardiola has said he is short of players for the second leg. Uh, Zinchenko is... Oh, Zinchenko is available. Zhao Canseo is ill. Kyle Walker is suspended. Nathan Aki and Ruben Diaz are injured. Uh, we only have 14 players available. Well, this just isn't true, Pep. It just isn't true. Because if I take a quick look at your club, I can have a look at your EDS and Academy. And what that tells me is that you have loads of players. Players everywhere. Coming out your ears. Now, this is after five, five, 10, 15, 18, 20. Manchester City have 27 players who are registered to their academy, currently out on loan. 27 of them. But let's see CJ Egan Riley, very highly rated young defender, captain of your under-23s team. Let's see him get a chance tonight then. You're 5-0 up. Let's see him play. Let's see Josh Wilson play. Another highly regarded young player. Good fullback. Let's see these lads get a chance for once. Let's see McAtee play. Let's see Liam DeLapp get a game. Or Jaden Braff. Let's see these lads get their opportunity. Instead of you hiding behind excuses. Oh, we've got such a small squad and so hard done by. You spent a billion quid. 
if you don't have enough players, it's your fault. It may be if you did some character assessments before signing players, one of your players wouldn't be sitting in prison at the moment awaiting charges for a multitude of rapes. So, you know, cry me a river. Cry me a river. You've got loads of players. Absolutely buckets loads of players. I don't want to hear it from Guardiola. He, If there's one man who can never, ever cry poor mouth, it's Pep Guardiola. It's as simple as that. It's Pep Guardiola. He's just not allowed to complain about injuries or suspensions or anything else. Especially when he tried to sell us all on the nonsense that, well, we sold a player for 60 million, so we can buy a player for 100 million, which would have been fine, except that the player for 60 million was sold the year before and all of that money was spent. So you spend 100 million on Jack Grealish in the summer. You could have gone and bought three good players for that amount. Instead, you bought a fella that you've left on the bench frequently who hasn't impressed, who hasn't improved your team, who doesn't fit in your team. You bought him to play as an eight. You've been that off after one game. I don't hear it from Guardiola. I'll, I'll listen to it from any other manager, not from him. Not from the guy bringing his own deck of cards to every single table. Walked into the best ever situation anyone could take at Barcelona, being handed the keys to Messi, Iniesta, Busquets and Xavi. I'm sorry, I'm never going to listen to you. You walked into Bayern Munich and they just handed you a team that were the reigning European Cup winners. And at Manchester City, you've spent a billion quid. And it's worth pointing out that to this day, the five best players of the Guardiola era at Manchester City are company, Aguero, Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, and Raheem Sterling, none of whom were bought by Pep Guardiola. None of them. He walked in to an incredible squad, spent a billion quid, and the five best players of his time in charge were all there before him. Anyway, Real Madrid faced PSG in the other Champions League game tonight. This one will be worth a watch. PSG won up after the first leg. Real played very defensively. They were very cautious in that first leg. I think with the aim of getting it back to the Bernabeu with the score close. Obviously, one of the older overriding narratives on this game is Kylian Mbappe and what this game could mean for his future. The answer is nothing. The answer is absolutely nothing. After the first leg, we had very poor reporting by a number of French journalists suggesting that Mbappe was so put off by the defensive approach of Real Madrid, he decided not to sign for them. He, he just decided not to sign for them. Absolute tripe. First of all, if Kylian Mbappe goes to Real Madrid, it will be on a five or six year contract. Carlo Ancelotti will not be there for five or six years. He might be there for 
one more, maybe two more, and that'll be it. So Mbappe knows that the majority of his time at at Real Madrid would not be spent under the current manager. He will also know that Carlo Ancelotti is not a defensive manager. He is the least Italian Italian manager of all time, bar Gian Piero Gasparini, who to this day I don't believe for a second is Italian. He will know that Ancelotti is a player that gets the best out of attacking players. All he needs to do is look at this Real Madrid team. Take a look at Benzema and what he's been able to do. Take a look at Vinicius Jr. and what he's been able to do. And he will deduce, no doubt, that this man is brilliant for attacking players. And if he wants more evidence on that, he can go back and look at Kaka and Shevchenko and how they exploded under Carlo back at AC Milan to become, at the time, arguably the top two players in the world under his tutelage. So, nonsense. Nothing that happens tonight will impact Mbappe's decision, but it should be a very, very good game. should be really exciting. And I'm looking forward to seeing how Vinicius and Benzema do up against Mbappe, uh, Messi, and, I mean, we'll see if Neymar turns up. Um but it should be a good game. It really should. Interesting midfield battle. Obviously, you get Tony Cruz versus Verratti, the third and second best controlling midfielders in the world. Uh, so looking forward to that one. We also have two Europa League games tonight. Now, the Champions League games are 8 p.m. The Europa League games are at 5.45. Porto versus Leon should be a good one. Porto beat Lazio. After dropping into the Europa League from the Champions League, they beat Lazio to meet Leon. Leon topped their group to advance to this point. Uh, Real Betis going well in La Liga this year. A little bit of a dip, and they've dropped out of the top four, which is disappointing. But they are in the Copa del Rey final this year, I believe. So that's a big plus for them. Uh, let me just check on that. I'm almost certain that's the case. I think they're playing Valencia. Uh, Real Betis 21-22. I believe I'm right in saying that. Yes, they are playing Valencia in the final on the 23rd of April. So massive, massive opportunity for Real Betis to win some silverware. And obviously, they're going well in this competition too. So two avenues to win a trophy, something that has eluded them for what are we now 17 years since their last Copa del Rey 17 years not a club blessed with massive amounts of silverware won La Liga title back in 33-34 two Copa del Reyes and they've won the second division seven times and the third division once so um, yeah it'd be nice to see them win a bit of silverware. It'd be very, very nice to see Joaquin get some silverware on his way out. This is likely the last season of his career. But Nabil Fakir, Sergio Canales, two wonderful players to watch. William Carvalho having a bit of a renaissance this year as well. Uh, Guido Rodriguez, good player to watch, holding midfielder, one I do like. Uh, This is a fun team. Claudio Bravo, former Manchester City keeper there as well, and managed by former Manchester City and West Ham boss 
Manuel Pellegrini. They go up against Eintracht Frankfurt. Frankfurt have had, I think it's fair to say, a disappointing season after missing out on Champions League last season by one point. They really did bottle it in the end of the season and throw it away. But they knew the manager, A.D. Hutter, at the time was leaving. Glasner, who had managed Wolfsburg into the Champions League, left Wolfsburg, came to Eintracht. It hasn't gone great. They're 10th in the league out of an 18-team league, so they are bottom half. Um, 37 scored, 37 conceded. They've been mediocre. That's what they've been. They've won nine. They've lost nine. They've been mediocre, uh, which is disappointing because I think they had some high hopes for the season. But look, a couple of wins will get them back potentially into European contention for next season. I don't expect them to win the Europa League, but they will be a tough test for Real Betis. So Porto, Leon, that's the one I'd watch. But Real Betis might be the most entertaining team of the four. Uh, Leon have a lot of good players. Maxence Kakaret is one to keep your eye on as well. So that's tonight's games. And uh, they should be fun. So you get your two games at 5.45. Like I said, I'd watch Porto Leon and then your two Champions League games. I think Real PSG is the one to go and watch unless you're a City fan. And even then, you know you're going through. Like even if you lose 3-0, you still go through comfortably. So it makes no difference at all. You're not losing 5-0. We can say that with absolute certainty. Manchester City will not lose by five clear goals. This one is not going any further than the 90 minutes and uh, Manchester City will be through, whereas the other one potentially could be a bit of a classic. Uh, We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got some news and we've got some Manchester United that we need to talk about. So see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, yesterday, you'll remember we talked about Everton. More bad news for Everton today with the Daily Mail and Matt Hughes, who's about the only Daily Mail reporter worth listening to, has an exclusive. Everton risk a Premier League points deduction as they teeter on the brink of breaking profit and sustainability rules after recording combined losses of over £260 million between 2017 and 2020. That's £155 more than is allowed over a three-year period. So they're not teetering on the brink. They have absolutely smashed the rules. Now, there is an allowance because of COVID for some of that to be put down to COVID. However... There is absolutely no chance that all 155 million of discrepancy is down to COVID. Everton are yet yet to publish their accounts for the 2021 Premier League season. It's anticipated that the accounts will include another loss in excess of 100 million. A deadline of later this month has been made for all Premier League clubs to submit up-to-date accounts. Now, they didn't lose as much money in 1920 as they would have lost in 2021. So they've definitely broken the rules 
between 2017-18 and 2019-20. There's no question they've broken the rules. When would this points deduction come into effect is the question. There's no news on that in this story. It's a well-written story. You can check it out at the Daily Mail. Just search Daily Mail, Everton points deduction. It's the first result. But forever, this highlights what I was saying yesterday about how badly run the club has been from top to bottom. We've also had the news, obviously, in the last couple of weeks that they've severed links with Alisher Usmanov, their benefactor, all the sponsorship deals that were coming from him, which could cost them 300 million over the next 20 years. And in all likelihood, quite a bit more than that. The stadium has now got to be seen as in doubt. And the future of Everton is not looking bright at all. In their 2019-2020 accounts, 67 million of the club's losses were directly attributed to the pandemic. So what that would tell me is that 88 million was not attributed to the pandemic across the course of 2017 to 2020, which means they have broken the rules. They're the first team, since these rules were brought in, they're the first team to break the profit and sustainability rules of the Premier League, which is a phenomenal achievement. I mean, you'd nearly give them a cup, hold a parade, get some DVDs out, if not for the fact that what that has led to across these seasons has been disastrous. Not even disappointing. It's been disastrous. They finished eighth in 17-18 after spending a boatload of money. They finished eighth the following season after spending a load more money. They finished 12th in 1920. Eighth, eighth and 12th to break the rules. If you'd at least won something, but you went out of the FA Cup in the third round in 17-18, the fourth round in 18-19, and the third round again the following year. You went out of the EFL Cup in the fourth round, got knocked out of the group stage of the Europa League, were not in Europe the next year, went out of the EFL Cup in the third round, and then you got to the quarterfinals. So that's what you got. Everton broke the rules to finish mid-table and get to the quarterfinals of the League Cup. This is not a serious football club. This is just not a serious football club. And they should be punished. Now, like I say, we don't know when these points would be deducted. And how many points would it be? Would it be three? Would it be six? Could it be more than that? Would they be deducted this season? Would they start next season with a deduction? What if they're in the championship next season? Uh, the profit and sustainability thing can't carry over. Likewise with a lot of championship clubs who get promoted to the Premier League. If they've breached the profit and sustainability guidelines across the previous three years and are due a penalty, either a fine or a points deduction, but they get promoted, that will disappear if they stay in the Premier League for a few years. 
So would it be the same if Everton went down? Would they not get deducted points? What if they came back up? Would they then get deducted those points on their return? For the sake of fairness, it probably should be this year. Now, that will be a massive disadvantage to Everton fans, but I'm sure Burnley and Bournemouth, or Brentford rather, and Watford and Norwich are looking at this and thinking, well, we haven't broken the rules. We've been good. We've played by your guidelines. And considering at the moment it's them and Burnley for that third relegation spot, I'm sure Burnley are looking at it and saying, hang on, we make a profit basically every year. They spend recklessly. We barely spend. (laughs) And we're the same now. So punish them. Burnley have got to be making noise about this. They, They certainly should be. And while people will say it's the wrong way to stay up, Burnley won't care. Burnley be in the Premier League. They, they're not caring. Another story on the Daily Mail website. Everton are facing a wage crisis if Frank Lampard cannot save them from relegation with many players to stay on Premier League salaries, include, including some earning near 100k a week. Like, what that tells me is that nobody at Everton is going to have a relegation clause. None of them are going to have a contract that suggests they drop in wages if they go down. Their top earners, like, let's have a look at their squad. And we'll be able to figure out who the top earners are fairly fairly comfortably so Pickford's going to be one he's England's number one so he's going to be earning 100 grand plus Kenny will be on low wages Patterson will be on low wages Holgate won't be on massive money Michael Keane costs 25 30 million he'll be on decent wedge Alan is definitely earning well over 100 grand probably in the region of 150 grand a week he definitely doesn't have a relegation release clause uh, Richarlison's going to be on about 100 grand, if not more. He's not going to have one. Calvert-Lewin's going to be on the same. He's not having one. Uh, I think Gilfie Sigurdsson's contract might be up this summer, so that won't really matter. Um, Fabian Delph, he's going to be on big money, brought in from Man City at his age with his experience, and no way he's got a relegation release clause. Damari Gray won't be on huge money. Yerry Mina will. Andros Townsend will be on decent wedge. They're not having relegation release clauses. Dekure is going to be on good money. Iwobi is going to be on good money. You know Andre Gomes is on good money. Seamus Coleman's been there 76 years. He's going to, just by a, a continued service, he's going to be getting bumps. So he's going to be on good money. There's not going to be a relegation release clause there, but you'd imagine he's the type that would, you know, would go and say, look, I'll, I'll take less, tear that contract up, give me 20 quid a week and I'll be fine. Give me some pocket money and a place to stay and I'll be all right. Um, they, I think the Cenk Tucson contract finally runs out this summer. Like, that's a lot of players who are definitely earning over 100 grand a week. Coleman, Gomes, 
Decore will leave Gilfie out because, like I said, I think his contract expires. Mina, Calvert Lewin, Delph, Richarlison, Alan, and Pickford. It's at least eight or nine earning over a hundred grand a week. And in some cases, like Alan, I believe quite a bit more than a hundred grand a week. And none of them are going to have relegation rele- relegation clauses. So they're all going to go down on their Premier League wages if they do go down. It, it just gets worse and worse for Everton. But we leave Everton alone for now. Let's let's talk about Manchester United. Because, well, their season is going a little bit better than Everton's. They're currently fifth. In comparison to what they aimed for, I think they're going to be similarly disappointed in their season. In comparison to their expectations, their spend, their braggadocious behavior pre-season, when Cristiano Ronaldo returned, they brought in Varane, they got Sancho. They thought they had a title winner. They did. There is no way they signed Cristiano Ronaldo unless they thought he was the piece that could win them the title. Now, as we know, Oli was sacked. We'll take a moment. And just remember, Oli, at the wheel, absolutely no idea where he was driving the bus. But by God, if you were an opposing fan, it was a joy to watch. This gormless pillock careening down a cliff with Sir Alex Ferguson cheering him on. He got sacked. Ralph Rangnick appeared. According to the media, this was a genius move. Ralph Rangnick is the godfather of gegenpressing. He's the guy that Thomas Tuchel and Hansi Flick and Jurgen Klopp all look up to, except that he wasn't, because Wolfgang Frank was the guy that Flick and Klopp looked up to, and Klopp was the guy that Thomas Tuchel looked up to. And Ralph Rangnick had never been a great manager or a great coach. He'd been decent, good with small clubs. The highlights of his career were generally promotion from the second division in Germany to the top flight. He won a German cup a decade ago. But for a decade, he hadn't even been a full-time manager. Since leaving Schalke, he hadn't really been a full-time manager. He left Schalke September of 2011 after only six months in the job and he managed 23 games there. The last time he was actually a full-time manager for any sort of long period of time was at Hoffenheim and he left them in January 2011 having built them up from basically nothing. Great job he did to his credit but that's where he made his bones. I mean, you know, he did 
He did well at Stuttgart. He did fairly well at Hanover. Brought them from the second division up. Uh, he did okay at Schalke the first time, finished second. Then it all went really badly and he got binned. It went to Hoffenheim, did very well there. But again, up through the lower leagues. Um, and then he, you know, went into being a sporting director. He became the sporting director of RB Leipzig and the, the greater Red Bull group. He had two stints as Leipzig manager, one in 15-16, one in 18-19. By his own admittance, he was not then a full-time coach. He was still the sporting director. He was managing the team, but leaving much of the coaching to the staff that he had brought in and built around himself. And I said it at the time. You cannot jump in to being Manchester United manager if you haven't been a manager for 10 years. This is not going to work. And thus far, he's managed 18 games and Manchester United have only won eight of them. Now, they've only lost twice. They lost to City. That was only the second defeat. But they've only won eight of those games. And it's not like United have been playing the very best that the Premier League has to offer. It really is not like that. So he took over on December the 3rd. In the Premier League, they've played Crystal Palace mid-table, Norwich bottom three, Newcastle at the time bottom three, Burnley bottom three, Wolves top eight but mid-table, Villa mid-table, Brentford bottom six, West Ham were a top four team at the time. Credit to him. That's his best result. Uh, Burnley bottom three, draw. Southampton mid-table, draw. Brighton and Hove Albion in a funk, mid-table anyway. Win. Leeds in a massive funk, potentially going down. Bottom six, win. Watford bottom three, uh, draw. And Manchester United, or sorry, Manchester City, top of the table, win. So they've played three of the top eight under Ranić, They beat West Ham. They lost to City. They lost to Wolves. They drew with Newcastle, with Villa, with Burnley, with Southampton and with Watford. In the FA Cup, they did beat Aston Villa, a mid-table team, and then they lost, they, they drew and then lost on penalties to a championship team in Borough. And in the Champions League, they beat Villarreal, who are, I think, eighth in La Liga. And they drew at Young Boys. Now, I haven't checked the Swiss League of late. Let's have a quick look. They are second in the Swiss League. 15 points behind Zurich. 15 behind FC Zurich. Then they drew Atletico Madrid, who, by all accounts, and just by watching them three times this season, you can tell they're having a very poor season. There's been a lot of question marks over the manager, his future, a lot of the players. All Black is in a funk. They've had injury problems. 
all across the defence and in midfield. Their strikers have not hit form this season. Griezmann's been disappointing. Suarez has had a drop-off. Cunha hasn't hit the ground running. hasn't been given the chances. Angel Correa has probably been their most consistent forward, and he's never going to be a big-time goal scorer. And Joe Felix has been inconsistent. So uh, they have played th- four good teams. You'll give them the credit of saying Atletico Madrid are a good team. They've played four good teams, and they beat West Ham. And that's it. And yet, we're meant to act surprised that they've dropped out of the top four. We're meant to act as if they're Manchester United. Of course, they're going to challenge for this or win that or do. They haven't been a relevant team since Ferguson left. They just haven't. And what they've done year after year is they have tried to put very expensive bandages over amputations. Not over wounds, over full-on amputations. They are putting gold-plated band-aids on an amputated arm. It's what Manchester United have tried to do. Because never once in the now almost nine years since Alex Ferguson retired and moved upstairs to do whatever it is he does, Never once have they appointed a qualified, highly regarded sporting director. They have overhauled their scouting department more times than I can count. And yet some of the same failed members of that scouting department remain. They have not invested in analytics at the same level that many other clubs have done. They have not invested in sports science at the same level that other clubs have done. They've never once taken a step back and considered the idea that just because under Sir Alex Ferguson, you had this incredible run where you won 13 Premier Leagues in 21 years, where you won two European Cups, uh, a Cup Winners' Cup, all the FA Cups and League Cups that they won, never once did anyone after that just take a little step back and think, we need to rebuild here. That's what we need to do. We need to build a football team. We don't need to buy a team. We need to build one. We need to be smart about this. We need to do this in stages. Nope. Not Manchester United. Money has been the order of the day. Lots and lots of money thrown around with no real plan on what it's been spent on. Let's dig back. Let's have a look at what they've done. So David Moyes is the chosen one. They sign Marouane Fellaini for $27.5 And then they signed Juan Mata in the January for, I believe, 36 million, 37.1 million. Now, I don't know if people remember this, but Juan Mata at Chelsea was an immense footballer, one of the very best in the league. 
the reason Chelsea were willing to let him go is that Mourinho didn't think he worked hard enough. Funnily enough, Mourinho then ended up working with him again at United. But in the 2012-2013 season, Juan Mata scored 19 goals, played 64 games, 4,910 minutes, and had 35 assists. 35 assists in a single season. 54 goals and assists. The season before that, he had 12 goals and 20 assists. Juan Mata was one of the preeminent playmakers, not just in England, but in Europe at that time. Juan Mata was 25 years of age when he moved to Manchester United. 25. He has never, in the eight and a bit years he's been there now, I think it's eight full seasons, seven full seasons, whatever it is. He's never hit 10 goals or 10 assists. For what they bought, Matt has been a disappointment. Fellaini was always going to be a disappointment, largely because he wasn't very good. They tried to make do, and Mourinho would always find the use for somebody of Marouane Fellaini's particular skill set. But he wasn't very good. There's two big flops. Neither of whom made sense for the squad that David Moyes inherited. If you take a look at that team, they had De Gea, so that's fine. They had a very old Rio Ferdinand, a very old Nemanja, uh, Nemanja Vidic, a past his best Patrice Evra, an under-decline Wayne Rooney. Ryan Giggs was still knocking around. Michael Carrick was at the end of his career. Well, he wasn't actually, to be fair, because he played a couple more years, but he was past his best. Van Persie was tailing out of his prime. You know, you look at the squad that he inherited, and it is a mess. De Gea, Raphael, Evra, Phil Jones, Ferdinand, Evans, Anderson, Rooney, Giggs, Smalling, uh, Lindegaard, Javier Hernandez, Vidic, Carrick, Nani, Ashley Young, Welbeck, Van Persie, Hen- uh, Henriquez, Angelo Henriquez, I haven't thought of him in years, uh, Fabio, the lesser Brazilian twin. Someone wrote a book on them. Someone wrote a book on Rafael and Fabio. Uh, and Fabio. Imagine. I want to meet the fella that bought that book because there can only be one sold. Uh, Tom Cleverley, Darren Fletcher, Antonio Valencia, Shinji Kagawa, who didn't work there at all and went back to Dortmund, Federico Makeda, who was good for about a fortnight, and then everybody realized he wasn't, Alexander Butner, uh, a young Wilf Zaha, Guillermo Varela, Nick Powell, Bebe, who, by the way, doing bits for Rayo Vallecano this year. Uh, really, really doing bits. Uh, definitely a backhander to Ferguson on that deal, though. Tom Lawrence, Jesse Lingard, and a whole bunch of other kids, including Adnan Yanazai, who you'll all remember was, according to some Man United fans, much better than Raheem Sterling. 
United gave him at like 19, 60 grand a week. And he just fell off a cliff the following week. He'd been really impressive. They gave him a big contract and he fell off a cliff. So that's your Manchester United squad. That is De Gea, a bunch of post-prime, formerly excellent players, and a bunch of squad players. And that's it. That's what he inherited. And he decided, along with whoever else is making decisions, that Mata and Fellaini were going to put it back together. Now, Mata, I could accept as a potential building block. You can make that argument. Not Fellaini. You're not building around Marouane Fellaini. Because he's going to play one, one style of football. But I could have accepted De Gea and Mata, that that's us building. So what I would have suggested then is the following summer, you go and you buy yourself, you know, some new defenders, because that's really what you need. Well, you know, they kind of did do that. They went and they bought Marcus Rojo. The problem is he wasn't very good and everybody knew he wasn't very good. They bought Luke Shaw and I'll accept that one. They bought Ander Herrera, who they tried to buy, and I'll accept that, that one. They bought... Daily Blind, okay, he was really good for Ajax as a centre-back and a, a holding midfielder, but I know for a fact you're going to try and shoehorn him in as a left-back. The problem is that when they started to try and build these teams, they also threw in Angel Di Maria, who's a win-now player, and appointed Louis van Gaal, who was never, ever going to be a long-term manager. He just wasn't. Louis van Gaal was 63 at the time. He'd been managing the Netherlands, which is a part-time job. His spell at Bayern Munich was impressive, but better things happened after he left. Louis van Gaal was past his best at this point and in semi-retirement. And United appointed him and thought, this is what will work. Now, they did win the FA Cup in his second year. They finished fourth in his first year, which was a fair effort. But you're starting to build around some younger players with a short-term manager. Doesn't really strike me as a plan. The following year, they go out again into the transfer market and they bring in Memphis, and I can see how that would work. Anthony Martial, again, I can see I can see you're doing something now. And then you bring in Bastian Schweinsteiger, who's a win-now player and doesn't fit the timeline of Memphis and Martial. Now, bear in mind, at this point, at Manchester United, you have Wilf Zaha. He might have been gone by then, but you should have had Wilf Zaha. You had Memphis Depay and you had Anthony Martial, some of the best young attackers in Europe. And you're bringing in... Bastian Schweinsteiger. Like, I, I don't understand what the point is here. You sell Angel Di Maria after one season for a substantial loss, it must be pointed out, uh, because he got his feelings hurt that the manager thought he was a wingback. So did Van Hal buy him? Because if Louis Van Hal bought him to play as a wingback, that's utterly ridiculous. 
did Van Hal have any say in his signing? Did he have any say in any of these signings? Because not many of them would fit the timeline of Louis Van Hal, which is win now. Van Hal was never staying for five, six, seven years. You were buying players that would need to be around for five, six, seven years to reach their peak years. Other than the likes of De Maria and Schweinsteiger. But yet he didn't seem to know how to use De Maria, which hints to me that he wasn't involved in the decision-making process. Then, after winning the FA Cup but finishing fifth, you sack Louis van Gaal and you bring in Jose Mourinho. Now, Mourinho, obviously, incredible at Porto. He'd done brilliantly at Chelsea. It's great into Milan, won a European Cup as part of a treble. That was the second European Cup. He'd also won the European Cup and UEFA Cup with Porto. He'd won back-to-back titles with Chelsea. Probably should have won a third, but injuries derailed that season. He'd gone to Real Madrid. He'd gone up against Pep Guardiola and one of the great club sides of all time. He won a title there, but everything, everything, everything had fallen apart for Jose Mourinho at Real Madrid. Everything. And when he came back to England with Chelsea, he was clearly a different man. He no longer had the same aura, the same belief in himself. He could no longer galvanise a squad. Now, he did win a league title with Chelsea, but it imploded within five months of that title. And it was spectacular to watch it fall apart around his ears at Chelsea after the issue with Eva Canario and the arguments with Hazard and McCourtois and whoever else he fell out with, it all came tumbling down. He was damaged goods. He was damaged goods. And Manchester United appointed him. For what? To win now. That's what they appointed him for, was to win now. Let's go and win now. Let's not worry about building. And to their credit, They won the League Cup and the Europa League, and maybe that's acceptable. But they finished sixth. They finished sixth. They went backwards in the league. You looked at the signings. They brought in Pogba. You thought, okay, special. Looks great at Juve. Who's he playing with in midfield, though? Because I'm not seeing anyone in midfield that suits with him. Under Herrera... He's a decent squad player. He's not really the type of player that's going to win a title for you. Doesn't have that kind of profile. They bring in Eric Bailly. Man, an aggressive athletic defender. He's not really a traditional Mourinho-type defender, though, but we'll wait and we'll see. They bring in Mkhitaryan, who's coming off a couple of great years with Dortmund. And you're like, okay, okay, this is, this is getting interesting. They go and they win two cups. You think, all right, fair enough. Maybe Manchester United are on their way back, but they still finish sixth. Then you go into the second season under Mourinho, and again, there's big bags of money being thrown around. They sign Lindelof. You're thinking Lindelof's a good defender. He's a weird fit with Eric Bailly, but, you know, whatever. They bring in the Man United. You think, okay, a holding midfielder, but why are Chelsea letting him go? And... Are you now saying you're ready to win this season? Because he's only got a year or two left. As it turned out, he didn't even have that. You bring in Romelu Lukaku. Okay. Okay. You've got your goal scorer. 
Mkhitaryan hasn't worked by this point. Memphis didn't work at all. Martial is inconsistent. You've got this emerging Marcus Rashford, so maybe Rashford and Lukaku and get Pogba in midfield and Matic does a lot of the defensive work and Herrera will do some of the running and the defence is a little bit hodgepodge, but, you know, you, you can kind of see something taking shape, but not necessarily in the next year or two. And this is year two of Mourinho and he never really lasts much longer than three years, but he does tend to win the title in year two. It's kind of what he does. And you finish second. You know, they also signed Zlatan, should be pointed out. And then they made the disastrous move of deciding that mid-season, when they clearly weren't going to win the league, they decided to go and swap Mkhitaryan for Alexis Sanchez. Now, I could kind of see the appeal. Alexis had had a couple of great seasons at Arsenal. But he basically quit on them. He was phoning it in for the last six months he was there. He was being very obnoxious about the fact that he wanted out. You gave him half a million a week. Not what a smart club does. So now you've got him on big money. You've got Lukaku on big money. You've got Pogba on mega money. You've got De Gea on mega money. So you're spending the wages of a title winner. And yes, you finish second, but you're 19 points off the top. 19 points off the top. But Jose seems content and all is going well and he's talking it up as one of his great achievements. And you go out in the next season and it's a measured approach. You bring in Fred, a grafting midfielder who you know, can keep the ball moving. He might compliment Pogba. You bring in Delow and that's a right back and you've got Shaw and you've got Lindelof and you've got Bailly and maybe this is your defence with De Gea. That kind of might work maybe, except for the fact that Bailly and Shaw and Delow want to play a bit of a higher line. Mourinho doesn't. Lindelof suits a deeper block. De Gea can only play with a deep block. You don't really have that sitting midfielder because Matic hasn't worked out. Maybe Fred will sit in next to him. Matic won't have to do as much running. Fred will do more of the running. Pogba can float in front and you, know, you figure it out with this attack. And it all just goes to absolute dirt. It's just a mess. It's an absolute mess. And Mourinho's out by December. Ollie's in the door. As caretaker, you're thinking, okay, this is surely just a short-term thing. They won't be foolish enough to keep this man because he's not a good manager because we can look at his track record and he's not a good manager. We can look at what he did at Cardiff and we can denounce he's not a good manager. We can look at other managers who've won Norwegian titles, such as Henning Berg, and we can say, well, United wouldn't appoint him, so why on earth would they appoint this guy? It's the same argument that I will be making in two years' time, if Jurgen Klopp leaves, as to why Liverpool should not be appointing Steven Gerrard. Because I will point at Jesse Marsh and say, would you appoint him? Because he'll have done about as much at Leeds as Gerrard will at Villa. Would you appoint him? No, no. But Ollie does well. He does well. Rashford's in form and Martial's in form and 
they make a decision to sell Lukaku in that summer. It's not a decision I would have supported, but Ollie made the decision, having been given the job permanently, that he wanted to sell Lukaku. And they go out and they sign Dan James, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, and Harry Maguire. So Dan James was joining Leeds in the January for, I believe, £6 million. Aaron Wan-Bissaka had one season of Premier League football under his belt. And Harry Maguire had been relegated, I believe, three times in his career, had two good seasons with Leicester, but nothing spectacular. He had had the good World Cup, which sort of boosted his profile, but he was a 35, 40 million pound defender in that Lewis Dunk, uh, James Tarkovsky sort of region. So for the six million pound winger, the fullback with one season and the 35 to 40 million pound centre back, Manchester United spent the princely sum of 142 million pounds. Let me just again for those in the back. £142 million on Dan James, Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Harry Maguire, who three years ago, most United fans would never have heard of any of them. Three years previous, obviously, not three years from now. They've been there three years. It's the three-year anniversary uh, this summer of that incredible transfer window. Uh, Absolutely shocking stuff. Um, The best of them, by a substantial distance, is James, because they made a big profit on him. In the January, they go out and they make arguably the best signing since Ferguson left in Bruno Fernandes. But it doesn't overwrite the fact that they spent 142 million pounds, 80 million on Harry Maguire, 50 million on Juan Bissaka for one season. And of course, there's the famous story that came out that Juan Bissaka was signed after an exhaustive search. This is what they claimed that there'd been an exhaustive search. And that this was the left back or the right back that they needed. That this was the guy who ticked all the boxes for them. I think it was somewhere in the region of 803 other right backs. Now, just 803, okay? Think about this for a second. There are only a handful of leagues in the world where the players are good enough to potentially play for Manchester United. Now, there's probably a lot out there that could play in the United Academy 
and be developed or come in as a backup. But to come in as a starting right back for Manchester United. So you've got, obviously, the big six leagues, the Premier League, the Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, the French League, the Portuguese League. They're just big six. All of them, okay? That's uh, 118 clubs, I think. Is it 118 or 116? Now, many teams in Portugal. 116. That's 116 teams, right? So let's just say they each have two. They're not. All of those teams do not have one right back that can play for Manchester United. But let's just say they've got two senior right backs each, right? That's 232 potential right backs in the pool. You might look at MLS, the Ukrainian League, the Russian League, the Dutch League, the Belgian League the Austrian League and maybe the Scottish League. There's seven more. There's no, I know there's not 20 teams in each of them. I think there's like 12 in a couple of them. Let's just say it's another 100 clubs. And again, let's say there's two right backs at each club. That's another 200. So now we have 432 potential right backs. Let's add in Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, uh, China, Japan. And let's say that's another 120 clubs. Let's say that's another 240 right backs. Again, we're at 672. So we're still having gone through what now? Uh, 18 different leagues and 336 clubs, potentially, we're still 100, 131 potential right-backs short of the number. And maybe they can claim that these are academy... You're not buying an academy right back from another club to come in and start for Man United in the same way that you're not going to go and buy like St. Etienne's backup right back or Guangzhou Evergrande's backup right back, even the starting right back. The 803, this was nonsense. Where did they even pluck this number from? This was the line that they fed journalists, actual journalists. And some of them just nodded their head like a dog and went, oh, that's great news. So this guy must be really good then. How would anyone know he played one season? You spent £50 million on him. If they put Wambasaka on the market tomorrow, they'd be lucky to get 15 They'd be lucky to get £15 million. There are so many better English right-backs. Like you spent £50 million quid on a guy who's English and will never get capped. Never. He won't even get a look in at senior level. He got 321 caps. He'd be better off going and playing for Democratic Republic of Congo. He just would. He's not good enough to play for him. You've got Trent, Walker, Reese James, James Justin, Tariq Lamptey, 
Tino Livramento, Max Ahrens. They're all better than them. I'm sure I've missed somebody, but there are seven English right backs that are better than them. And only walkers over the age of 25. In fact, only Walker is older than Wan Bissaka. He's been 50 million on a right back who's never going to get capped for his country. And then you tried to say that he was one of 803. Sorry, he'd have been number 804. Oh, and maybe you can add the championship in. There's 24 clubs. You know, again, League One, championship in League One, and maybe that's what you died to know. Oh, my God. What sort of glue was been sniffed when these decisions were being made? And again, you buy Maguire for 80 million. Why? Because he had a good World Cup. You got last year, you buy Donny van de Beek. Why? He plays the same position as Bruno Fernandes. Alex Tellez, I can live with a backup left back. never a bad thing. He was cheap, whatever. You signed Cavani, who every other club in Europe had turned down. Everyone else turned him down. His agent offered him to everyone. It was almost shameful. It was nearly embarrassing for one of the great number nines of the last 15 years to be paraded out like some sort of prize pig at a country fair. But you signed him and gave him a nice chunky deal. I liked the Ahmed Diallo deal. I have to say I did. He's a tremendous young player. But Jesus, what, what, what were you thinking signing Cavani? who, by the way, is fit and basically refusing to play for the club now. And Donny van de Beek, who's had 18 months at Manchester United and barely played and is now on loan at Everton. Like, they signed him for the sake of making a signing. And I said it at the time, and all these stories came out about how Oli Gunnar Solskjaer led this Move to get why would he buy a player for 50 million or whatever it was who plays the exact same position as his best player? If Ollie came to you and said, I want to sign Donny van de Beek, and you said, But he plays the same position as Bruno, and he said, Yeah, I know. How is the next follow up not? Well, why do you want them then? Like you've got Mata and Lingard and others that can play that position, you do not need Donny van de Beek. And then, and then they just cap it off, right? Going into this season, you could look at that United squad and say, right, as it stands, the pieces don't fit well together. However, with a couple of additions, maybe they can. What has been successful for us under Ali has been counterattacking football. So we are going to commit to being a counterattacking team. That's what we're going to be, is a counter-attacking team. So Juan Basaka is a very happy deep block right back. Luke Shaw, deep block left back, fine. Maguire can only play in a deep block. And De Gea 
has conniptions if his defense is more than 15 yards from him. So that's fine. We're going to go De Gea, those three, and we're going to buy a deep block center back, a commanding, aggressive, athletic front foot defender with a bit of pace to make up for Maguire. And then we've still got Lindelof as cover. So that's grand. If we want to get a bit more adventurous, we've got Delo and Tellez and Bailly, and that's grand. But for now, what we need is a deep block centre-back. In the midfield, we've got Pogba, who doesn't really suit any kind of style anymore. We're going to sell him, and we're going to look to reinvest that money. We have Bruno Fernandes, who can play as an 8 or a 10. He's better as an eight. We've got Fred, who's an eight. So we're going to buy a holding midfielder. I'm going to buy a sitting holding midfielder. He's going to sit in front of the back four. Fred's going to tuck in next to him. Bruno's going to launch the attacks. We're going to have Rashford on one wing, Greenwood on the other, and we're going to buy a number nine who can take the ball in and hold people off. And then we've got Martial and Delow and... Unfortunately, they bought Donny Van Beek. So we've got Donny Van Beek. We've got these players that can work in this system, as can Jesse Lingard, who for some reason we've kept hostage at the club. So what we're going to buy is we're going to buy a centre-back who plays in a deep block, a holding midfielder, and a, a target man striker who can bring others into the game, who can hold the ball up, hold defenders off, up for the physical battle, we'll run his socks off, we'll press from the front, and we can be, you know, a transition defensive team, and then we'll hit them on the counter. That's going to be great. We'll draw them in, wait for them to make a mistake, we'll take the ball off, them. we'll spring an attack, we'll get pace coming in from Rashford and Greenwood, who'll break from out to in, they'll play, you know, basically in a midfield five, we don't have the ball, but they've got the pace and the awareness to transition into central areas, where they're comfortable. Martial fits that. Diallo can play that way. Lingard fits that way. That's what we'll do. And, you know, for whatever reason, we've, we've kept Cavani round. So he's going to be the backup number nine. That's that's fine. Everything's great. We need these three players and let's go. So, as a centre-back, you go and buy Raphael Varane. <laughs> so Raphael Varane has spent his entire career defending the halfway line. He's never even seen a deep block. They don't have them in Spain, other than maybe Simeone's Atletico and Marcelino's the Villarreal and Valencia teams, whatever. Two managers, that's it. Everyone else plays either a mid-block or a high line. Varane has only ever played in a high line, doesn't know what it is to play any other way. So that, that immediately causes a problem because he doesn't fit with the rest of the defence around him. He just doesn't fit with them. He wants to be 15 yards further forward than Maguire or Wan-Bissak. And now Shaw is happy enough to go and play in a high line because he's got decent recovery pace and, you know, he's a strong enough defender. So he's happy enough, but the other two just don't fit. So now your defence becomes a muddled mess. David De Gea starts to have some sort of stroke because one of his defenders is wandering out of position. So that's not ideal. For your holding midfielder, you sign Jaden Sancho, a right winger. And you stick him out in the wing and you say, right, we're going to give you the ball and you make stuff happen. What you've ignored is Jaden Sancho is a wonderful player, a wonderful player. But Jaden Sancho, for him to be at his best, 
needs an attacking fullback that he can combine with. The best we saw of Jaden Sancho came either at right wing at Dortmund when he had uh, Ashraf Hakimi joining him in attack, or on the left wing for Dortmund when he had Rafa Guerrero. Two very attack-minded fullbacks. Neither of United's starting fullbacks are very attack-minded. The backups, Deleu and uh, Tellez, are, but not very good defensively. However, you could have transitioned into a high line. You get you get Deleu, you get Varane, you get Tellez. But Harry Maguire can't do that. And David De Gea can't do that. And the other problem with this is now your midfield. You haven't bought that holding midfielder you need. You're still rolling out Scott McTominay. Um, I saw recently someone praise McTominay as having a lot of Jordan Henderson in him, and I'd agree with a lot of that. Uh, but they called him a young player for the future. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, I could be because I am wrong the odd time. Scott McTominay is 25. He's not a young player anymore. Um, but yeah, so you bought Jaden Sancho. All is not lost. All is not lost. We'll make it work in midfield with, you know, Matic in some games and whatever. Get yourself that target man striker who can hold the ball up and bring others in and we'd be okay. Nope. Cristiano Ronaldo. A player never once noted for his off-ball work. A player who can't play back to goal. A fellow with absolutely no interest in bringing others into the game. But he earns half a million a week. Yeah. And they thought this was going to work. This wasn't a plan. This was throwing things at a wall and hoping it would work. This was grabbing a load of square pegs and trying to use a mallet to put them through round holes. And this is what they've done over and over and over again. And the demise is not a surprise. Harry Maguire's lack of form is not a surprise because guess what? This is what he's always been. He's always been a good but not great central defender. You pay great money defender for a good defender. You paid Van Dyke money for Harry Maguire. You thought you were buying Virgil van Dijk, but instead of buying a racehorse, you bought a donkey. And donkeys are great. They have lots of uses. They make good pets. They're nice to have around. You know, they're strong. They're somewhat reliable, unless they're in a mood. But you don't, there's a lot to be said for a donkey. But you don't go and pay thoroughbred racehorse money for said donkey. The same thing at right back. One Basaka hasn't worked. Who could have known? Crystal Palace knew. They've laughed every day since, since you spent 50 million on them. They'd probably take him back, but they'd only give you 10 or 12 million for him. He'd be a good fit there. Better than Joel Ward, better than Nat Klein. It's about his level. Mid-table, good player for them. Yeah. But you're getting 10 or 12 million. You're not getting 50. Again, Ashraf Hakimi went for about 50 million. A thoroughbred racehorse. You bought another donkey. <laughs> You've got more donkeys than Bright than Blackpool Beach. Who could have known it would all go so bad? 
everybody, everybody standing on the outside watching this happen. And the problem at Manchester United isn't just in the playing squad. You can appoint whoever you want this summer. You can appoint Eric Ten Hag, Pochettino, Zidane. You could, uh, you could get Otmar Hitzfeld and Arrigo Saki and clone the pair of them into one mega manager. And they still wouldn't be able to win with this club. Because the structure at the club is all wrong. We know they've got bad owners. Okay, we, we all know that they've got bad owners. Everybody's aware that Manchester United's owners are not good. But United are such a rich and powerful club that they generate enough money anyway that even if these people don't want to invest their own money, they want to take money, you don't need their money. The club makes enough as it stands. Now, that's that issue. Second issue, your chief executive officer was Ed Woodward, a commercial genius, a great businessman, a footballing fool. You've replaced him with Richard Arnold, who's been at the club for 14 years and to his credit was instrumental in you know, a lot of your good commercial deals and continuing your commercial growth and getting someone at Chevrolet sacked, but has absolutely no idea of how to run a football club because he's never worked at a well-run football club. He's worked, well, he, to be fair, to be fair, he worked at United for five years under David Gill and Ferguson, but that's nine years ago. And he was under Ed Woodward the entire time. He was like the assist, the deputy commercial director or something to begin with. And then he replaced Woodward as the head of commercial dealings or whatever the department was called when Woodward took the CEO deal. So that's bad to begin with. He He's not got the experience in running a football club, but you can make up for it with a really good director of football. You get yourself a really good director of football and this can work. You've got John Murtaugh, who's not a director of football. He's the football director. What that means, I have absolutely no idea. What I do know is he was the club's head of football development before this. And before that, he worked with David Moyes at Everton. He joined United with Moyes in some sort of capacity. I think it was to overrun the to overhaul the academy, but who knows? Either way, no experience as a director of football. Below him, Darren Fletcher. Qualifications for his job, zero. Role, technical director, brief, no one knows. Ralph Ranić doesn't know what he does at the club. You've got a head of football operations in Alan Dawson. Christ knows what he does. And Matt Judge, director of football negotiations. Just 
Think about that title for a second. Director of Football Negotiations. His CV includes paying 80 million for Harry Maguire, paying 50 million for Aaron Wan-Bissaka, making an absolute balls of the Jaden Sancho deal, and agreeing to give Cristiano Ronaldo £500,000 a week. £26 million a year to a 37-year-old who's years past being good. Years past it. Yep. These are jobs for the boys. This is a culture where sniveling kiss asses rise to the top where no outside voices are heard. And for those that think that Ralph Ranick in his consultancy deal is going to have any sort of real impact or input, you're dreaming. Because these boys won't listen to anybody. As far as they've concerned, they've got it all locked up. They're all taking home nice big salaries. And as long as they keep United in the top four, no one really bats an eyelid above them. No one really cares. So you can appoint whatever manager you want. United will not win a title for years and years. They're light years away. The gulf between them, Manchester City and Liverpool, is enormous. It's as big, if not bigger, than it's ever been. They're as far away from winning a title now as they were under David Moyes. In 1314. They're years and years away. You're going to have to overhaul. Most of that playing staff. You need a new goalkeeper. De Gea is not the modern goalkeeper. You're not winning the Premier League. With David De Gea. Ever again. Juan Bissak is not a title caliber player. Neither is Maguire. Varane is. But Varane is 29, so is he a player you can build around? Luke Shaw, I don't believe, is a player you can win a title with. He's a good left-back, not a great one. You've got no midfielders worth talking about. You've got Bruno. Does Bruno want to stick around for a rebuild? You've got Rashford. Seems to be a little bit alienated at the minute. You've got Sancho. He's a building block. You've got Ahmed Diallo. He's a building block. You've got Alanga. He's very talented. Martial will come back. I doubt he's going to be any happier than he was when he was there last time. Same thing goes for Donny van der Beek. Who knows what happens with Mason Greenwood. There's not a whole lot to build with there. You've got to tear it down to the studs and start all over again. You spent a billion quid to get here. and You're no better off than you were Nine years ago. At least nine years ago, you could say, well, we won the title last season. We're in the Champions League this year. Now, you're in the Champions League. You're not going to win it. You're certainly not going to win the title anytime soon. United's problems start from the top down. And until they fix from the top down, there's no point in building from the bottom up. None. You're not going to win a title with Richard Arnold, John Murtaugh, and Darren Fletcher as the three most important 
decision-making people on the football side of the club. You're just not. Right, enough of them. Let's run through the news quickly. Uh, Pedro Neto has signed a new five-year contract with Wolves, committing himself till 2027. Neto's obviously just returned from a serious knee injury, and he is probably the best or second best player at the club. So getting him signed long-term is a massive deal. There's a lot of very good players at that club. There is the makings of something really good with a bit a bit of inv- excuse me investment. You've got a really good manager. You've got the, in the likes of Aitnuri, Neto, Neves, obviously, Trinkau if you keep him, potentially Fabio Silva, Max Kilman. There's a lot of very good players, very good young players there that could be part of something special. Uh, in the championship last night, Sheffield United beat Middlesbrough 4-1 at Bramall Lane. Sander Burge, Billy Sharp, Callum Robinson and Morgan Gibbs-White with the goals following Balogun with the only goal for Borough. Sheffield United, and this is something I have to hold my hands up on. I thought they made a mistake when they sacked uh, Jukanovic, but under Heckenbottom, they have been outstanding. Uh, they really have. So credit to him. I believe when he took over, they were in like 16th place, 13th place maybe. They're now fifth. They lost nine games under Jokanovic. They've only lost two under Hackenbottom. They both managed in and around the same number of games. I think... I think Jukanovic might have managed one or two more, but either way, their form has been great. They've won 10 and drawn four of their games under heck and bottom, and it's a credit to them how well they're doing. Disappointing result, obviously, for Borough. They drop out of the top six, so out of the playoff spots, but still well-positioned to jump back in, only two points behind Luton and Sheffield United. Uh, Bournemouth went back second in the division, Though a disappointing draw with Peterborough, who are bottom of the table. Uh, worth remembering there, Peterborough bottom, Barnsley second bottom, Derby third bottom, despite being deducted 21 points. Derby are only five points behind Reading. Uh, Reading have obviously appointed Paul Ince, so Reading maybe want to get relegated. Uh, but Bournemouth, they have their games in hand. They are 14 points behind Fulham, but... They do have two games in hand. They're leveling points with Huddersfield, but a better goal difference and three games in hand on them. So Bournemouth looking like they might get automatic promotion. Uh, Swansea got their bottoms kicked by Fulham. Mitrovic, a Cabango on goal. De Cordova-Reed and two from Nico Williams. uh, Very one-sided. Very, very one-sided. We also had Luton beating Coventry 1-0. Blackburn and Millwall playing at a nil-nil draw and Barnsley playing at a 1-1 with Stoke in the championship last night. Um, we have news about Euro, sorry, World Cup 2022 playoffs. So Wales's playoff with Austria will go ahead and Scotland versus Ukraine has been postponed. Now, the winners of those two will play each other it was set to be on the 29th of March. That's obviously going to be changed. 
But Wales will play Austria on the 24th of March and we wait and see what happens between Scotland and the Ukraine. Obviously, far more important things going on for the Ukraine right now. We'll finish up with the gossip. Man- uh, Newcastle United are interested in signing Antonio Rudiger as our Manchester United. If ever there was a club looking to overpay a centre-back, definitely Man United. Rudiger and Varane in a two would be better than Varane and Maguire. But I do wonder if maybe that's they could make it work as a three under the right manager. Varane, Maguire, Rudiger. Because Varane... Maguire is going to be in the team. He cost 80 million. He's the club captain. He's not getting dropped. Uh, Delo and Shaw or Tellez as left wing back. Not ideal. Tellez is, is, is better as, a, as an attacker. Shaw's the better overall player. Uh, Shaw's probably more suited to playing left side of a back three anyway. I don't know why they haven't tried a back three this season. They don't have midfield to do it anyway. Uh, anyway. Uh, United could miss out on signing the centre-back because of uncertainty over who the manager will be. That's just nonsense. He doesn't care who the manager is. If he cared about the manager, he'd stay where he is. He cares about his money. Arsenal could attempt to re-sign Serge Gnabry. Um, I have doubts. I have doubts. Uh, It's from a... It's by Football London. It's not by Chris Wheatley, who's the Arsenal reporter there, who'd be worth listening to. It's by a man who's an Arsenal fan brand writer slash presenter. So we'll just chalk that down to nonsense and just move on. Um, Tottenham are prepared to listen to offers for Emerson Royale. I doubt it. They'll give him time. Borussia Dortmund's 21-year-old Erling Haaland wants to join Barcelona in the summer again. I doubt it. Joan Laporte has denied reports are, I'm sorry, negotiations are underway to sign Haaland. Again, who cares? He's going to make a decision. He'll make the decision. The clubs will just give him whatever he wants. So it it doesn't really matter. I, I think he's going to go to Real Madrid. Liverpool boss Jurgen Klopp wants to sign Jude Bellingham. That's, I think, fairly widely known. Um, Manchester United expect Cristiano Ronaldo to leave this summer and are lining up Richarlison as his replacement. Um, okay. I, I, I mean, it's not up to Cristiano if he leaves this summer. It's up to United. They will be better off letting him go. But the idea of signing Richarlison is just a bit bizarre. Uh, Andreas Christensen's agents are in Spain to seal a move to Barcelona. This has been coming. Roma will make a move for Diogo Delo this summer. Mourinho does seem to like him. Aston Villa are ready to exercise their... Uh, this is from Fabrizio Romano, so it's garbage, so we'll move on. Uh, England striker Harry Kane has told teammates he will stay at Tottenham next year if Champions League football is secured and Antonio Conte remains the manager. If you want Champions League football, get the lead out of your backside and waddle your way through games and win some more football matches. You've had two good performances all season. Two. So let's see a bit more of it, Mr. Mister Kane. Let's see you get back to your form of last season. Let's see a little bit less of the backside and a little bit more of the goals, uh, and then we'll have a conversation. Uh, Liverpool will have a chance to sign 
Kareem Adeyemi, but face competition from Dortmund. He will be signed before the summer transfer window opens by someone. I don't think it'll be Liverpool. It'll probably be Dortmund. Paris Saint-Germain and Chelsea are interested in signing Riyad Mahrez. No, they're not. Uh, RB Leipzig have joined the race to sign Real Madrid's 17-year, sorry, 19-year-old Spanish defender, Rafa Marin. Rafa Marin is a very, very talented young central defender who, for whatever reason, gets absolutely no luck in at Real Madrid. This season, he has played, uh, I think, two minutes in the first team. I could be wrong. Maybe it's less. but It's, it's not more. Uh, Manchester United will have to pay up to 80 million euros to sign Sergei Milinkovic-Savage. They've been signing Sergei Milinkovic-Savage since before they signed Paul Pogba. Former Arsenal winger Perry Groves says the Gunners should target Dominic Calvert-Lewin at the end of the season. Uh, he's probably right. He probably is right. He's probably the most realistic option out there. Uh, he's, a, he's a very good player. Uh, the only issue I would have is that Arsenal are not a team that depends on a lot of crosses, especially aerial crosses. It's more cutbacks and central play. So I don't know that he's the ideal fit, but I do really like him. Um, Perry Groves was a, was a decent player for Arsenal back in the day and just got very unfortunate. With uh, I think he ruptured both Achilles tendons and that kind of ended his career very early, like 29, something like that. Um, on the yeah, Everton face the wage crisis, we've already we've already been over that. So that is me for today, folks. A uh, bit of a long one. I do apologize for that, but I think it was warranted. I will speak to you all tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your days. Enjoy those games tonight. See you next time. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.